Welcome home, all right? Welcome. We're so glad that you are here with us and present here with us today, whether on-site, online, or maybe even on demand during the week when you're watching this again. We're just glad that you are able to join us. And our prayer is that you will be blessed by God's Word and His work in your life. If this is your first time here, we want to say a big hello to you. I'm Pastor John, one of the pastors here, and it's my honor to bring you the Word this afternoon. Alright, we are going to take communion at the end of the service. So if you have not had, uh, if, on, if you're on site and you do not have your communion elements, you can head, off to, uh, head around to the back, collect it from the ashes and go back to your seats again. Alright, so if you need the communion emblems, remember to do so. Uh, collect them at the back and then go back to your seats. Let's uh, start with a word of prayer, alright? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather to just listen, worship, uh, and just engage and lift your name up. Lord, this place that we come into, this building or even this space online that we enter in, is to engage with you, is to worship you. May your name be lifted up. May you be exalted. This is all about you, Lord. We gather in this place to worship you. So thank you, Lord. May you be exalted in our midst. And we pray that as we lift up the name of Jesus, that you will draw all men unto you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone says... Amen, amen. Can I hear the amen? Amen, amen. Have you ever, have you ever wondered why when growing up, you know, like our parents, our teachers always had to teach us to do the right thing? When we grow up, there's no, you, you don't hear your parents tell you to do something negative or, or bad, but you always hear them telling you, hey, boy, girl, stop doing that. Do the right thing. This is how you should behave. You know, I, I'm a father now, and some of you may know my son Judah. He's one and a half, and he is such a playful boy. And I realized that I have to keep teaching him how to be kind, how to be patient, how to be caring, or how to be, you know, like giving and share with others, not to be greedy. I realized that I did not need to teach him how to be greedy. He just naturally became selfish and greedy. He wanted things for himself and he demanded things in his own way and he's always impatient. Have you ever wondered why this happened when we are young? And that as we are growing older, we realize that as we get older and older, we get caught up in a cycle of our wrong decisions. The sum of all our wrong decisions lies on our shoulders and we realize that we are stuck in this cycle of living. Have you ever wondered why? And I, I, I realized that this is probably the result of humankind's problem with sin. The death and spiritual separation from God. You know, and this brings us to our sermon this week because last week we understand that because of sin, Adam and Eve were cast out from the Garden of Eden. God's initial plan for Eden to be in relationship for us to be in relationship with this human family was now destroyed because of sin. So today my message is the cure for death. This is part two from last week. And if you missed out, you can go online and just search us on YouTube, Grace Assembly of God, and you'll be able to watch all the messages. All right, today we continue on the title of Cure for Death and God's solution to the problem of physical and spiritual death had to be one that is radical. It can't be something that is simple or straightforward that we all may think of. It had to be something that was radical, that was, that was the foundational, that was fundamental to how everything would go on from there. And this is where Jesus enters into the story. So the big idea for today is Jesus deals with humankind's problem of death and spiritual separation from God. 
Jesus deals with humankind's problem of death and spiritual separation from God. We're coming to a familiar passage. We're going to look through Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. If you have a Bible, you can flip there. And now, the first thing, the first key point I want you to take away is this, that Jesus is the promised seed. Jesus is the promised seed. And I have a subtitle there that says, He's our hope for every moment. As we go further down, you understand why He is our hope for every moment. So last week, Pastor Wilson shared about the serpent, or better known in Hebrew as Nachash, Nachash. And he was cursed, cast down to rule over the realm of the dead, the underworld. And because of the fall, everyone is destined to die and go to the realm of the dead, where the devil reigns. But I want you to understand this, that Nachash or Satan did more than just trying to tempt Adam and Eve to sin. Nachash was trying to do something deeper. He tempted Adam and Eve in order to destroy the very status that humans had with God. His main target was actually against Yahweh, the Creator God. And his goal for humankind was for us to die because of our sin. In doing so, then we will not be able to take the blessing of Eden to the rest of the world. You see, we know from the past few sermons that God created a divine family. He created a human family so that we can rule with Him to bring Eden to the rest of the world. So now this image that we have is affected and the relationship with God is now separated. As images of God, with the freedom of choice that came either as a blessing or a curse, what happened in the end was the curse of death came upon all humanity from that day onwards. And we see in Romans 5, 12, it says, because of this, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, so also death spread to all people because all sin. See, the real problem is not about sin itself. The real problem is not about Nahash trying to tempt Adam and Eve. The real problem for all humankind was death and spiritual separation from God. Now we no longer are able to rule with Him to rule with Him as His images. And God had to do something about humankind's problem. The question is, how is this going to happen? How is Jesus or how is God? What is God's plan? How is He going to redeem humankind after, human, after humanity just broke that relationship with sin against Him? What is He going to do? And the answer begins where we left off in this passage in Genesis 3.15. God had a plan right from the beginning. It says here, Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. You shall bru- he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So what can we understand from this passage? Very simply, let's break down what this says. The first thing is there will be conflict. There will be conflict. The word enmity means conflict. And second is, there will be a constant conflict between both seats, between Nakash and the woman. And ultimately, there will be a confrontation or showdown between both seats. See, imagine the position of Nakash. Now that he has been cursed by God, he hears all that God has to say that you are going to be crushed by this, the seat of this woman. Even though you may try to injure this person, you will still be crushed on the head. Imagine what he would do. I don't know about you. If I'm in his position, if I know that you're going to crush my head, say, in three days' time. I'm going to do whatever I can in my power to prevent you from doing it. 
I'm going to try and deter it or at best, I will try to take you out before you can even do it to me. And this is what we notice in what Nakash did. This is what we see exactly throughout Scripture. You will see, for example, in the, the, in the Exodus, where the Israelites were under Pharaoh, Pharaoh tried to wipe out all the male-born child. That's why Moses had to escape. His mother had to put him into the river now. Or you see this in the book of Esther where Haman tried to cause a genocide to take place and wipe out all the Jews. Or maybe even in the New Testament where you see King Herod when he found out from the three wise men that there was a king among the Jews whose name is Jesus. He decided to kill every male-born child two years and below. See, Nakash was trying to do something to get rid of the seed of this woman. And now we fast forward to Jesus entering the world as the God-man as a solution to humankind's problem. So as you arrive on the scene where Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, and He's preparing for ministry, He is led by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says He is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to confront Satan. So we see in Matthew 4 verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I want you to pay attention to the word wilderness here. The word wilderness in Greek actually means eremos, eremos. And for those of us who have been in church for a while, you know, we would naturally link the wilderness experience to when the Israelites came out of the Exodus, came out from Egypt, they went into the wilderness, uh, that account. So like, for example, the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years and Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. There is a parallel going on there. But I want to explain to you deeper today that there is something deeper in this. According to Leviticus 16, the Old Testament Jewish worldview sees the wilderness as a place that belongs to Satan. It is a place that is void of life, barren, and where dead things belong. This is Satan's territory. And we see Jesus being led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to confront him. Satan doesn't go to Jesus where Jesus is. Jesus goes to the territory of where Satan is. He enters into his opponent's territory. And so I want you to look at this passage from the angle that Jesus right now, he is the aggressor. He is the one that's coming to the enemy's territory and saying, I'm coming to take charge. I'm coming to get rid of you. So what we observe in this account in Matthew 4 is that Satan tries to use the same tempting tactics and tricks all over again that we see in the Garden of Eden. So we see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, and the tempter and Satan came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So the first thing that Satan goes after to tell Jesus is to go against God's will, to tempt him to go against God's will. Why? Because in this moment that God has a plan for, for Jesus was for him to go into the wilderness to fast. And the first thing that Satan does is, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Just change it, you know, you, you feed your hunger right now. Do whatever you can to feed your flesh. Why bother with what God's will is for your life right now? Just do it if you are the son of God. So the first temptation that we see is the temptation for him to go against God's will. And we see that parallel in Genesis 3, 5. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she ate it for the now. So we see that echoing in the same manner that she saw something that was pleasing to her. And Satan said, just, just take it, just do it. 
Don't, don't need to wait for God. Don't need to care about God's will. Just do it right now. The second temptation we see in Matthew 4, 5 to 6, it says, Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Wow. Satan responds and now challenges Jesus with scripture from Psalm 91. Telling Jesus, if you are truly the Son of God, jump. God will protect you. God will save you. And this temptation that he was giving to Jesus was to tempt him to doubt God's love. If you truly think that God loves you, let's test God. Let's jump right now and see whether God will save you. See whether God will do something to rescue you if you are truly God's Son. See, Satan is tempting him in his identity and saying, you sure God loves you? Let's see, uh, let's see. Let's, let's try it out and see. You will surely not die. And we see that echo again in Genesis 3, 4, where it says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. The same thing the serpent did in the garden. It was the same thing that Satan did in the wilderness. He told Jesus, you won't die. If God really loves you, you won't die. Just try it, just test the third temptation we see is in verse 8 and Satan says, uh, it says here, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. In this final round, Satan tries to fast-track Jesus' destiny by offering the nations and the kingdoms of this world. You see, as we all know on hindsight right now as believers, we read the Bible, we see John 3.16, the famous passage that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And when we read that passage, you, you realize that God sent Jesus because He loved the world. And Satan understands that and so he's trying to say, why don't I give you the world right now? I give you the kingdoms, the nations, I serve it to you on a platter, all you need to do is to worship me. Don't need to go through God's plan. Don't need to go through God's way. Just do it my way now. Worship me. I'll give you whatever you need. I'll serve you your destiny right now. Je Jesus, in this moment, is tempted. Why? Because He can get the world. He can redeem everything in the instant, but the choice was on Him whether He would want to do it, to take the shortcut with Satan. And we see this again, same, the same parallel in Genesis 3, when Satan tells Eve that God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, knowing good and evil. He tricks Adam and Eve into thinking that they can do things in their own way and be like God. Why bother about God's plan? Why bother about God's ways? Do what you need to do now and, and do whatever you want to do. I can help you. All you need to do is just take the shortcut with me. You see, in the first temptation, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve failed. They failed because they did not actually know what God said. They didn't know what God said. Satan was able to twist, feed doubt into their minds, and that led to the fall. But in the second temptation in the wilderness, Jesus responds to Satan with, it is written. Go back and read and study Matthew 4. You will see every single time he was tempted, Jesus responds with, this is what the Word of God says. It is written with the very Word of God. So in other words, Jesus responds to Satan and says, God did not say to the first temptation to do whatever I want. 
For some of us here, we look at it and, and it seems to us that Satan is saying, just do whatever you want. But Jesus is saying, no, God did not say to do whatever I want. Instead, I need to live by God's word and His will is more precious than what I want right now. The second thing that God did not say is God did not say to test Him and to prove His love for me. But Jesus is saying, I know that I'm confirmed by His love over my life. When He was baptized, God already said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. I know His plan for me. I don't need to test God to prove anything. That's what Jesus is saying. And the third temptation, Jesus responds by saying, God did not say, take the shortcut with Satan. But instead, God says, worship Him alone. Worship God alone. Follow His will and His way alone. You see, Satan tries to attack in these three areas of our lives. In Adam and Eve, in Jesus, and today I believe that's what God, that's what God wants us to come up from. That's what the enemy wants to attack us in. Do whatever you want. Why bother with God's plan? Test God. You sure you, are you sure God loves you? Are you sure that God really loves you? If He really loves you, then why are you in this state right now? If He really cares for you, then why did He allow this? And that's what the lies of the enemy comes into. It always comes into our head. And the last thing is to take shortcuts. Take the shortcut with Satan. You know, if this is really what you want, just do it the way you want it. Why bother with what God wants to do? Why do it His way? when you can do it your way. See, Jesus is the promised seed. As we see in Genesis 3.15, that God already had a, had a plan that the seed of the woman will overcome the seed of Nakash. And He is our hope for every moment. See, to the first temptation, I want to challenge us today. How are you, how are you following God's will for your life? How are you growing in God's will? How are you trusting in God? You know, we need to consistently read, listen, and study God's Word and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in all truth. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead us. Then only we will be able to resist the devil and to flee from temptation by declaring God's Word and His truth over our lives. See, if you do not know the Word of God, then you'll always be tricked by the devil. The enemy, the Satan himself, knows Scripture and he actually uses Scripture against Logos, which is Jesus, the Word of God. But thanks, thankfully, God, Jesus knows the Word and He responds with the Word of God. The second thing where Satan tempts us to doubt God's love, to test Him, how are you trusting and resting in God's love for you? How are you empowered by the depths of His grace to live victoriously in your life? Are you going around just living mediocre lives and just being satisfied with whatever that's coming your way? Some of us, we are so comfortable with the pain, the struggles, the temptations, the addictions that we're going in because that's the only thing that we know. That we, we become so uncomfortable with being free or being set free. We, being, we, we feel uncomfortable with living in the freedom that Christ has for us because all we knew was to live in that state. But I want to challenge us today, how are you living victoriously in Christ? Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know who you are in Christ? And last temptation is, he tempts us to, have to take the shortcut with him, with Satan. And my question to you is, do you really trust in God's ways? Do you believe that God has a plan for your life? Do you believe that God will lead you according to his will and his way? The temptation, is for, the temptation for us today is to, you know, take the shortcut, to do it our way, to have it our way, to have it the way we want it, instead of how God had planned it for us. 
Is your arrival to what you want more important than what God wants for you? And I just want to encourage us, let's continue to trust God, even when you're facing a difficult moment of not knowing where this is going to lead. But if you look back into His Word, if you study His Word and read His Word and know what He says about you, then you can rest in what lies ahead. So after Satan failed terribly in the wilderness, trying to stop Jesus, but he failed, we see Jesus now pushing Satan out of the way. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Then Jesus said to Satan, Be gone, Satan. Verse 11 says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Wait, what? Wait, wait, wait. Hold, hold on, hold on. Isn't this the wilderness? Isn't this supposed to be the devil's territory? What do we see here right now? That the devil is the one that left Jesus. He's the one that flees in this moment. In other words, Jesus is the one who comes into this territory and says that, you know what, Satan? Get lost, lah, get lost. It's time. Now is the time where you're done. You're done here. The kingdom of God now is going to take over. And this left Satan probably wondering, what, what's going to happen next? He had no idea that Jesus uh, had a plan. He had no idea what Jesus was going to do. And in the Gospel of Luke, in the Jesus temptation passage, we will see that it says at the end, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him for an opportune time. See, Satan had no clue and was looking for an opportune time to attack Jesus. And in the Gospels, you will see that the next time Satan appears is actually when he enters Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. So how did Jesus win? How did Jesus win? We see the second key point is this. Jesus is the covert Christ. Jesus is the covert Christ. He is the suffering Savior who understands. I bring your attention to Matthew 16, verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bajona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, at first we understand that Jesus is the promised seed as mentioned in Genesis 3, verse 15. And now the question that everyone in that time will be asking is, what is he going to do next? And to the disciples, they knew that Jesus came to restore humanity back on track, but they did not know that he had to do it by dying on the cross. So how did he plan to defeat the devil without giving space or room for the devil to retaliate? Doesn't Satan have divine intelligence to know what God's plan is? And the truth is this, yes, Ezekiel 28 speaks of Satan's wisdom or corrupted wisdom, that, that Satan is actually quite smart. You can look at Ezekiel 28. Look at how he deceives us even in our own lives and manipulates God's word, twists it and misquotes it. But God is omniscient and He's all-knowing and He's definitely way smarter than Satan. And so Jesus defeated the enemy by hiding the plan of God in plain sight. I submit this to you that no one at that point of time during Jesus' time knew God's plan that Jesus had to die on the cross. Even His disciples had no clue. That's why Jesus is the covert Christ. He had to deal with the problem of death by keeping the plan hidden. 
some of us may be asking, but wait, 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 wait. Isn't this whole Messiah thing of Jesus being the Savior mentioned in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming? Yes, that's true, but there's no mention, there's nothing in the Old Testament that references the Messiah to be a God-man, God that's coming as man to save the world. And maybe some of us who know the book of Isaiah will be thinking, what about Isaiah 53 that talks about the suffering servant? That passage makes no hint of the word Messiah. There's no Hebrew word Messiah in that text. This is why in Matthew 16, Jesus responds to Peter by saying that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but but by my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, this is a divine revelation that's been granted to Peter. See, again, we might think, didn't Jesus spell out everything for the disciples? Didn't he say that he's going to die and, and he's going to rise again? Didn't he give all these clues? Yes, he did. In fact, in Matthew 16, as we continue this passage, it says, verse 21, From that time, Jesus began to show his, his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things for the, from the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And we see the same Peter who declared that, responding right now, saying, He rebuked him and said, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. In the same chapter, the same passage, one moment Peter was declaring that Jesus is the Son of the living God, the Messiah. And the very next moment, he's rebuking God and saying, How can you say that you're going to die? How can you say that you're going to suffer and die? No, 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 that can't can't happen. But Jesus responds to to Peter by saying, get behind me, Satan. You see this word, get behind me, Satan, the Greek phrase there is the same words that Jesus used in the wilderness when he told Satan, be gone, Satan. It's the very same phrase that he used. And so Jesus is showing to us that Peter's response is highly inspired by Satan. Both Satan and Peter are trying to block Jesus to hinder him from going to the cross, from fulfilling his destiny to redeem humanity. Peter and his disciples had no understanding of God's plan. In their minds, they had this picture that the Messiah, some of us may know this, the Messiah is going to be this warrior king that is going to come, he's going to take over everything, he's going to lead a battle, he's going to lead us out of the oppression and the rule of the Roman Empire. He's going to lead, free us from all this. They had this idea who the, they, they had this box of who this Messiah is going to be and what is he going to do. They thought it's going to be a physical deliverance from what they were experiencing. And this clearly explains why when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples fled. And when he was crucified, when he died, they all quickly hid and they were afraid. See, even after Jesus' resurrection, even after Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples had to have their minds supernaturally opened in order to see who this suffering Messiah is. Only someone who understood all the pieces of God's plan in the Scripture will be able to make sense of it. Right now, we have the gift of hindsight. We can piece all of it together. But for the disciples at that point of time, they had no idea what was happening. So Jesus had to explain and enable His disciples to understand what the Old Testament Scripture was simultaneously hiding and revealing. We see this in Luke 24, when two disciples were walking back to Emmaus. They were were feeling very disappointed that Jesus had died. 
And Jesus walks up beside them and in verse 26, it says this, Was it not necessary, Jesus talking here, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning Himself. The disciples were with Him for three and a half years and they had no clue that Jesus was going to die. That Jesus had to die and to rise again. And Jesus had to enlighten His own disciples by showing them the Scripture. And that's why He is the covert Christ. He is the veiled Messiah. So not only did the disciples not know, the enemy, Satan and all his minions had no clue as well. Like what we discovered earlier, there's no clear and apparent mention of Jesus as the God-man that will come into this earth to save the world through His death. This is why Jesus' enemies, both human and divine, Pharisees and Satan and demons alike, they were fooled into killing Him. They were fooled into killing Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 says this, But we speak the hidden wisdom of God in a mystery, which God predestined before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See the last sentence, pay, pay attention to the last sentence. For if they had known it, they would not have crucified our Lord. See, the rulers of this age had no clue. They could not discern what God's plan was. Had Satan knew, he would not have entered Judas to betray Jesus and to those who wanted him dead. They, the demons knew that Jesus was Son of the Most High. You would see in the Gospels, they would declare, oh, stay away from me, Son of the Most High. They knew who Jesus was, but they had no idea what Jesus was going to do and they had no idea the plan God had through the cross. Everyone thought that the death of Christ was the end of everything. But little did they know that the crucifixion was actually His coronation to become King overall. The crucifixion of our Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, is actually His coronation as King. Jesus' execution is His exaltation. Jesus' execution is His ex exaltation. See, the plan was hidden so that Jesus could die. No one knew. The only way to overcome death, the, the only way we can overcome death or anybody, anybody can overcome death is to be resurrected. And the only way that you can get a resurrection is when you die. That's why Jesus had to come. He had to come as man. He had to die first as man. God who became flesh, became the ultimate sacrifice and the perfect atonement for us. Jesus had to deal with humankind's problem of death and spiritual separation by dying on yours and my behalf. By dying on behalf of you and I. Hebrews 2, 14, 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's only by dying on behalf of all humankind could the curse of death be reversed. Jesus is the second Adam, who came to reverse what happened in the garden by the first Adam many thousand years earlier. He came to reverse all of it. You see, in the first Adam, he faced temptation and he failed miserably. 
In the second Adam in Jesus, Jesus faced temptation and he triumphs. The first Adam was attracted to a tree that he was not supposed to be near and he sinned against God. The second Adam, who is Jesus, confronted the tree and embraced the tree. The first Adam made a choice to disobey God. The second Adam in Christ made the choice to obey God. See, one man's failure at a tree led to the death of humankind and the spiritual separation from God. However, one man's triumph at a tree led to the cure for death for humankind and the reconciliation with God. See, Jesus dealt with our problem of death and separation with God by embracing the cross and reversing what the first Adam had done. So some of us may be thinking, what, what, what's the implication of this? Why did Jesus, why is, so what if Jesus is the promised seed? So what if Jesus is the, is the covert Christ? I want to say this to you. Maybe you're thinking this, what, why even give the freedom of choice since He knows that we will mess up? Why did God give us the freedom of choice since He knows that we will mess up? And I want to propose this to you. The next slide, please. I want to propose this to you that it's only because of His depth, the depth of His love. See, the freedom of choice was given because like what we understand, that's the function of being an imager of God, whether divine or human. And for us today, we perceive the idea of messing up or blowing up the plan that, that no, we fail, we fail. But not for God. God isn't threatened or surprised even if His divine or human images fail. He still chooses to continue to allow us the gift the choice, the freedom of choice, because He is almighty and He is love. That's how much He loves you. His love is so great that even when He knew that we would mess up, He still chooses to express love. He still chooses to have a plan to redeem us. This is what the Bible says, the chesed, the chesed, which is the loving kindness of God towards us. Unlike us, if we knew that someone would fail us, we would cancel this person straight away. But God didn't do that. God sees your mistakes. God sees our sin. God sees our situation. He sees the cycles of habit, habitual sin that we are in and He still says, I love this person. I, I, I want this person. I want this person in my family. The second implication we might ask is, why bother? Why did God bother with all of this trouble and detail just to save us? You know, maybe you are asking God, hey, God, since sin, right, since it happened in Genesis 3, why don't He just snap a Thanos finger, get rid of all humanity, and just start anew. Why did he have to bother with all these things for what? He's God. And I want to say this to you. God's desire from the start was for you, for humankind, to have dominion, to have that mandate to rule, just like what Pastor Joey shared with us in the third sermon, that we are here to rule with him. He wants humans. He wants us. But because we fail again and again, the only way to continue to have that original Eden being spread to the rest of the, this world is to have that perfect human to come and show us what it is. And that is only through Jesus. That's why God Himself came and incarnate in Jesus. See, Jesus went through all of that. He went through all of this to deal with our problem of death and spiritual separation because why? God, God wants you. He wants you to be a part of His family. He wants you more than anything else. He wants you so much that He's willing to let His Son die on the cross. I don't know about you, but for me, now that I have my son Judah, I won't even want his finger to be broken. 
I don't even want him to chop off his hand. Why? Because I love him so much. And I cannot imagine the, the pain that God had when he saw his only son, that he had to go on the cross to be whipped, to be nailed to the cross, bleeding for more than six hours, be humiliated, naked, and people pass by spitting on him. I cannot imagine what God had to go through so, so that what? So that he can have you. So that he can have you. So that he can have you in his family. So that you don't have to go through all of that. You don't have to experience any of that because he loves you. Jesus didn't die so that he can create a great sin management program for you. Help you to manage your sin, you know. He didn't die just for that. He died so that we can be alive. He died not, not to make you a better person or a, a very kind or moral. That, those are great things. But Jesus truly died on the cross. He came to die for you so that you can be transformed from death to life and to be made a new, a new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed and behold, the new has come. And 1 Corinthians 15 says this, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. See, he did all this. Even though we messed up, even though humankind messed up, it is our problem. He did all of this because he wants you. He wants you to be a part of his family. He, he rather have you and all the evil and all the suffering, all the pain in the world, he rather still have you than to not have you. Why? Because there's a chance. He knows that he can bring you back. He knows that he can redeem you back into his family. And then we can continue to go out and bring Eden, that, that, that whole original idea of Eden, to the rest of this world where we are, we are ruling with God to, over, to have dominion over this world. So in summary, through one man, Adam, we experienced death. But through another man came the resurrection for the dead of all. See, only in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ can we ever overcome the problem of death and spiritual separation from God. Jesus is the promised seed and He is the covert Christ that reversed what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is the cure for death and because He lives, all of us who now live in Him will live forever. See, Jesus is the covert Christ and He is the suffering Saviour who understands. He is the suffering Saviour who understands. Hebrews 4, 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a great high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We, for we, we do not have one who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has gone through it all, tempted in every respect, yet without sin. So what is your confession today? What are you confessing over your life? Hebrews is saying, when you confess this, you know that you have a high priest who is here for you, who has gone through everything. He understands what, are you, what you're going through. Some of us today, we are confessing the wrong things over our lives for the longest time. You've been confessing and speaking out and saying, yeah, I suck. Yeah, I've gone through this. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a loser or, or I, I, I'm, not, I'm not good enough as so-and-so. Or maybe I'll never be that because of where I am right now. 
And that's, that's all the things that, that, that Satan did. As you see, as you trace from the garden to the wilderness to today, he's attacking the identity that you have. He's attacking the love of God over your life, causing you to doubt that. And we are confessing this over our lives. But today, I want to encourage us to confess the love of God, to confess what Christ has done, to confess that Jesus has died on the cross and He rose again so that you can have life and life abundantly. So whatever you're experiencing today, Jesus understands. He understands what you're going through.